Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to SEAC Stories. This podcast is brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members, exploring and sharing their research in and across the region. My name's Dashara Dibley from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Rural Myanmar is undergoing significant change. After decades of economic and political isolation, the rural economy is rapidly shifting from a narrow reliance on low productivity agriculture to a more diverse array of farm and non-farm activities. And this change poses very urgent policy and scholarly questions around inequality, livelihood patterns, and food security. Here to talk to me today about some of these issues is Dr. Mark Bickle. Mark is assistant professor in the Rural Sociology Group at Wageningen University and an honorary associate of the School of Geosciences at the University of Sydney. Mark is a human geographer by training and his research focuses on the intersections between rural livelihoods, smallholder agriculture and patterns of agrarian change in South and Southeast Asia. Between 2014 and 18, he was involved in a major AIC-funded study that investigated the changing relationships between livelihood patterns land, poverty, and food security across three different regions in Myanmar, which you'll be discussing with us today. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me, Tisra. It's great to be here. So to kick us off, could you explain to us a little bit about how processes of socioeconomic change in rural Myanmar have affected the way opportunities for advancement have been distributed across society? Yeah, well, since about 2015, with the election of the NLD, which ended about 50 years of military rule in Myanmar and isolationism. Myanmar was largely disconnected from the global economy. But in 2015, with the election of a democratically elected government, things started to rapidly change for the Myanmar economy overall. Uh, And this involved a reintegration with the global economy including in agriculture. And so farmers, rural households that previously had limited options for marketing their agricultural produce, but also lived in a a less dynamic rural economy than we see in other parts of South and Southeast Asia, suddenly were experiencing a quite rapid reopening of the rural economy, different livelihood options that weren't available before but also different pressures from global markets, from an influx of uh, new forms of investment and new uh, foreign actors uh, investing in the rural economy. And uh, what we've seen is, is a rapid reshaping of livelihood possibilities, but also rapid processes of differentiation and increasing inequality in the rural economy as well as those rural households that were better positioned to take advantage of these new opportunities have been able to get ahead, while other households who perhaps had access to lower amounts of assets, didn't have as much land, are being left behind. And so this project then, we were really interested in getting to the bottom of these new dynamics and finding out the implications of these rapid changes for households that are positioned differently within uh, the rural economy. Okay, so do you want to explain a little bit more about the goals of the project and what you were trying to find out? Yeah, sure. So this was a really interdisciplinary project, along with my colleague from geography at University of Sydney, Professor Bill Pritchard, 
Uh, we also worked with Professor Michael Dibley from Public Health at University of Sydney and also Anu Ramaman from University of Western Australia. Uh, Anu's a development economist. And then we had uh, multiple partner organizations in Myanmar, mostly from a public health angle. And so the primary focus of the project was to understand the food security and nutrition implications of these rapidly changing livelihood contexts in Myanmar. And so we were interested in what kinds of households pursuing new livelihood opportunities were experiencing what kinds of food security and nutrition outcomes. And my work in that was really focused on the livelihood side and trying to understand these emerging livelihood dynamics and these new patternings that were emerging in the rural economy of winners and losers. So the project operated in three regions of Myanmar. We were undertaking case studies of 90 villages in total. And this was uh, in Chin State, in the uh, uplands on the Indian border of Myanmar, in the dry zones around Magwe in the center of the country there. And then our final region was Aowadi in the Delta. So each region with very different agroecological dynamics, but also very different social and cultural dynamics as well. So one of the key findings was around the differences between those households that made a living from farm versus non-farm economies. Could you explain a little bit about what those different forms of livelihood are and what the differences were that you found? Yeah, so this is a really central question that livelihood researchers but also geographers interested in development and, and agricultural development have been focused on. Um, not just in Myanmar, but uh, in South and Southeast Asia, this question of livelihood diversification and its implications for poverty alleviation and for development. And what we mean by uh, the non-farm economy is uh, the increasing tendency or trend for rural households who largely a lot, a lot still own farmland and still grow some crops on their land, but are more and more looking for their main sources of income outside of the farm. So getting jobs in a nearby town in construction or sending their children off to university to be educated, to get a higher paying job in the city and their kids sending money home in the form of remittances and a myriad of other types of um, non-agricultural income generating activities that rural households are more and more engaging with. And so farm-based livelihoods are still certainly very important for rural households in Myanmar and across Southeast Asia. Uh, but a lot of evidence, including from our study in Myanmar, shows that more and more rural households' primary source of income comes from outside of the farm. And so this has a lot of implications for how we think about rural development policy, for how we think about agricultural policy, and also implications for how international organizations, uh, aid agencies, uh, development agencies think about the programs that they implement in these countries, which typically have been primarily focused on agriculture, but now we see a shift towards 
more dominance of the non-farm economy. And so development interventions need to be cognizant of this. So you mentioned that one of the interesting findings was that people who were viewed as living primarily off agriculture actually made more money from their non-farm activities. So could you elaborate a little on this finding? Yeah, sure. So I think it's important to note that we're talking about diversity here. So it's rare to find a rural household in Myanmar that solely earns their income from agriculture or conversely solely earns the income from non-farm activities. So households typically pursue a mix of livelihood activities. So different household members are engaged in different income generating activities. Typically, the male head of household might be engaged in agricultural production. The female head of the household might be engaged in a non-farm activity, uh, whether that's production of uh, handicrafts or operating a small shop within a village. And the adult children might be engaged in in other activities. Uh, So diversity is the key word. But the implications of the balance of those activities are quite interesting. And so when we looked at this from a food security and nutrition angle, a logical way of thinking about food security and nutrition is that households engaged in farming are perhaps better off in terms of their food security and nutrition situation because they can consume foods that they grow on their farm. And so we might expect a situation where uh, households that are heavily engaged in agriculture have a better food security situation. So those households would rate their food security higher than other households. But when we uh, looked into the data that we collected, what we were actually finding is that while, yes, farming does give you a certain level of food security and nutritional outcomes, it's actually those households that are pursuing really high value and dynamic non-farm livelihood activities, particularly through avenues of education or starting businesses or leveraging their contacts outside of the village. These are the households that are really seeing marked improvements in food security and nutrition outcomes because they have increased amounts of cash to access food in markets. And so that ability to access food through the cash economy and access perhaps a more diverse range of foods in markets was actually leading to better food security and nutrition outcomes than those households that were more reliant on agriculture. And then the second part of this important story in Myanmar is the really high rates of landlessness in villages in rural Myanmar. And this is a bit different to some other countries in Southeast Asia in that uh, in some villages, and this is a legacy of how uh, land ownership patterns have developed over time in Myanmar, but in some villages you can have 80% of households that do not own land, that do not have access to land. And so obviously agriculture as a livelihood strategy and as a food security and nutrition strategy is not appropriate for these landless households either. And so the non-farm economy and opportunities in the non-farm economy, including through migration, 
become really, really important to the food security and nutrition outcomes for these landless households. What do these findings mean for the kinds of development interventions that are put in place to help people in in rural Myanmar? Yeah, great question. So I think the way that we look at this is the importance of taking a livelihoods perspective. And I was recently in a workshop with Robert Chambers from Institute of Development Studies, Sussex there, and Robert Chambers was one of the key architects of this livelihoods approach, and he puts it in the terms of whose reality counts, and he also uses the frame of putting the last first. And so if we view agricultural economies, rural economies, from a more macro level as policymakers and development organizations tend to do, we might see a landscape or a context that looks like it's defined by agriculture and therefore development interventions that prioritize agriculture, uh, but particularly commercial forms of agriculture. And this has become a really dominant form of development thinking. A term that is used a lot is value chain development. So how to connect poor farmers to global value chains so they can grow food crops and sell their food crops into the global economy and therefore increase their incomes. That sort of thinking has become really dominant in development institutions. But if we zoom in, we find a much more complex and diverse reality, a reality that is less and less defined by agricultural livelihoods. And those households that can take advantage of those types of commercial agricultural-focused development interventions are usually actually only the maybe top 10 or 20% of households in rural villages in Myanmar who do own a lot of land, who do have access to credit and who can hire labour to help them engage in these forms of commercial agriculture that development organisations typically want to encourage. But that kind of approach, and this is what our project really emphasises, risks uh, missing or or making invisible sometimes those 80% of households that don't own land and whose livelihoods now depend on the non-farm economy. And they're still rural households. They still want to live in their villages. They still have close cultural and, and social ties in their rural places, and they want to remain living in these rural places. But for these households to continue to get ahead, we need to start thinking about development interventions in terms of the complex and diverse and myriad ways in which households pursue their livelihoods and not just view development interventions through this simplistic commercial value chain agricultural lens. So some of your work looks specifically at household gardens as well, and you came up with some unique findings regarding the links between households that had gardens versus those that did not. Would you explain those findings and their significance? Yeah, this idea of home gardens or what are also known as kitchen gardens was a really interesting point of analysis for us and something that we weren't thinking about before we we went into the field, but um, a dynamic that became quite important and, and really emphasizes the importance of taking a livelihoods 
approach and understanding what's going on from the perspective of rural people themselves. So kitchen gardens, home gardens are probably familiar to us all. Um, those that live in Sydney and have a balcony might grow some tomatoes or some herbs or, or salad. And this is the same in, in Myanmar, that um, households typically use space around their home to grow uh, some food crops that they use for their own cooking, for their own consumption. And kitchen gardens have also attracted the interest of development agencies. And the promotion of kitchen gardens has become sort of a real cherished ideal for development interventions. And there is good reason for that. There's a lot of evidence that shows that households that grow a kitchen garden do have improved uh, nutrition outcomes. But what we found, interestingly, in Myanmar is that although kitchen gardens do have these positive benefits for households, there were actually very low levels of households cultivating kitchen gardens, even though many villages had been the recipients of development interventions that were focused on promoting and encouraging kitchen gardens. And you'd walk around villages and you would see some of the signs that these uh, development agencies had left promoting their kitchen garden interventions. And, and so this became very interesting for us. And so we, we talked to people in the villages to find out what was going on. And what becomes apparent is that often these kitchen gardens do not fit into the livelihood patterns of rural households. And a couple of, of examples uh, really brought this home for us. So in many villages in Myanmar, goat herding is a really important livelihood activity, particularly for landless households. So even if you don't own a piece of land, you can still raise goats by um, grazing them on public areas of land or perhaps paying a farmer to get access to some grazing on, on farmland. And goats and kitchen gardens do not go well together. So if your livelihood activities are focused on goat herding and you are keeping your goats around your household, those goats will also eat your kitchen garden. Not only that, they will eat the kitchen gardens of neighboring households. And this might sound trivial, and it is kind of amusing to think about goats marauding through the village eating kitchen gardens, but it speaks to a really important insight in that development interventions that don't take the perspective, the livelihood realities of local people will uh, implement these programs, these well-meaning and well-intentioned interventions that then are at risk of having really suboptimal outcomes for rural households. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I mean, one of the things that I found fascinating about your work is the way that you take a really long-term historical view of agrarian and rural development dynamics. Why do you do this? Yeah, well, put simply, for me, it's that history matters. And so development interventions typically operate through a snapshot sort of approach. And that sort of approach is, again, I guess, risky in the sense that it doesn't account for the longer term dynamics that have produced that context that development institutions are seeking to shape or change. And so I think our work, particularly in the Delta, where we, we went back and, and looked 
at the history throughout the last two to 300 years of how that Delta rice economy had developed, how it was integrated into the British colonial economy, and then how it went through 50 years of isolation uh, in the Burmese military government era, and then how it's now been reintegrated into the global economy. And this has real effects on patterns of landholding, on patterns of advantage and disadvantage, uh, on class differences throughout the rural economy. And I think it's really important to take that long-term view because without that, you fail to understand the dynamics that are affecting uh, the types of outcomes that you want to see. I mean, I guess in the trajectory of Myanmar's history, we've hit another really major point of change. On the 1st of February this year, 2021, the democratically elected members of Myanmar's ruling party were deposed by the military. What ways are the findings of your research relevant to these most recent political developments? Yeah, it's disheartening and, and, and very sad talking about the findings of our project now in this new context after the, the coup. Um, I've been shattered for my friends and colleagues in Myanmar who were really starting to thrive in, in this new democratic and open society that Myanmar had worked very hard at developing over the last five years. And yeah, it's very up in the air what happens next in Myanmar. And I'm not a political scientist, so I won't try to dissect sort of the power games at play. But for our project, what is important is that rural households were starting to experience real material gains in their livelihood situations, um, in their food security and, and nutrition outcomes. And a return to isolationism, a return to the chaotic and ineffective rural and agricultural policies of the military era is a real concern for all people that are interested in rural and agricultural development and livelihoods and, and just the well-being of rural people in Myanmar. There's a couple of land laws that are currently being debated and these new laws could have real implications for tenure and access to, to land and land ownership, particularly for vulnerable populations in areas like Chin State that have more traditional or, or collective forms of, of land ownership and the military and organizations with ties to the military have been deeply implicated in episodes of land grabbing all over Myanmar. And so yeah, these types of dynamics, I think, are, are really concerning. But what gives me hope and what, um, what heartens me is to see the mass popular reaction that's currently taking place in Myanmar. And so yeah, I just express my, my support and my solidarity to all those protesting the coup. And yeah, we hope for a return to a civilian government as soon as possible. Yes. It's a very concerning time at the moment. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. And as such an interesting project, all the best in your future work in Myanmar. We look forward to hearing what you get up to next. Thanks very much for having me. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, 
please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.